0: So if you were here with us last week, you would remember that I offered some pearls of wisdom, wisdom on the art of manliness. So that's where I thought I would start today, some more unsolicited gems of wisdom on the art of manliness, because we all know just how qualified I am to speak about manliness. However, today, is a little different, because I do believe as a purveyor of wisdom that there should be equal opportunity. So this isn't just for the men. This is for everyone because, dare I say, I give generously without reproach to all. I'm going to talk about napping because I really like naps. And what I've learned over the years in terms of napping has been very helpful to me because I don't drink coffee, so there's no caffeine in my life. But sometimes when I need a kick in the pants, okay, napping is the way to go. So I want to make the distinction between napping and sleeping. Anything over 30 minutes in my book is sleeping, all right? Naps are under 30 minutes. And this is the way you should go about it. When you you take a nap, lie down, okay? You can't nap sitting up, that's just not the right way to do it. Lie down and set your clock, your watch, or your, um, your phone for 15 minutes, okay? Set it to ring in 15 minutes, and then shut yourself off from the world completely. Completely, just shut everybody out. And it's funny, because when I nap, I don't even necessarily have to be asleep. I'm just like, whew, relaxed. 15 minutes. 15 minutes, the timer, the timer rings. I wake up, I look at my watch, and I think, do I need a little more? <laughs> Maybe I do. And then I will set my watch to 10 minutes to ring in 10 minutes. And then, I'll, and then I will nap for another 10 minutes. And then it will wake up and it will say, do I need just a little more? And if I do, I'll put it for five minutes, but no more than that because 15 plus 10 plus five, let's do the math together, is 30 minutes. So no more than 30 minutes. And I can tell you I am completely and utterly refreshed, ready to meet the needs of the day after this nap. How many of you guys nap as a regular thing? All right, good for you. The rest of you should have your hands up as well because it is an amazing thing. Hashtag, I love naps. Hashtag, napapalooza. Hashtag, naps are the best. (laughs) While we're talking about hashtags, maybe you've seen this one before. Hashtag, blessed. How many of you have heard of this or have seen this anywhere, have maybe used it yourself in your life on your social media channels? Anybody post something with this hashtag on it? Hashtag blessed. You're lying, be honest. You guys don't want to admit to it. Let me show you some of the um, Instagram posts that use this hashtag blessed to, to, to convey how blessed that they feel. So this is the first one. It is a, a drink with a strawberry on it. I, this, is, this is blessed. I'm not too sure how or why, but this is what the hashtag goes along with on Instagram. And there are other ones like this next one. Um, scrambled eggs. Feeling this person is feeling very blessed by by scrambled eggs, and she's going to take a nap before work. That's great because naps are the best. We have another one. You've probably seen something similar to this. You know, the feet kicked up, they're relaxing. It's time to chill. It's the weekend. Feeling very blessed by that. And there's there's more. What's the next one? Snake skin. Okay, I'm not too sure what this one's about. Um, I try to decipher it, but I couldn't. But this person feels blessed, so I thought I'd put it up there. And the last one is a luxury car. I think it's a Range Rover. So this person is sitting in a luxury car, feeling very good about himself. He's living a good life, feeling blessed. His goals have been met in life, but being blessed is part of how he feels and how he's trying to convey that. So what I found in searching Instagram and looking at some of these posts is that a lot of times hashtag blessed really could be better conveyed as hashtag happy, hashtag food, hashtag relaxing, hashtag luxury, not necessarily hashtag blessed. Now, don't get me wrong. I know that, you know, as Christians, we want to give glory to God, right? We want to say, hey, these good things that I have in life they're a blessing from God. So I wanted the world to know that, that I feel blessed by it because I, I'm, I'm registering that these things are from God. Now, the problem with that, conveying that, you're, that you feel blessed because you, got, you, know, you, you signed a contract on the new home or feeling blessed because God provided you with a new job that you've been waiting for or wanting or um, feeling, feeling blessed because you're in a new relationship that, that God has brought uh, into your life, the problem with equating having these things with blessing is that if you take that to its logical extension, that um, then, then the people who have not are not blessed by God. And you think about the, the millions upon millions of Christians in the world who live on less than $10 a day and who do not have any of these things. And by extension, to say that because God has provided me with these things, I am blessed, it would be to say that, if God doesn't provide that for others, then they are not blessed. And so this whole idea of being blessed, we really need to be careful about how we think about it because um, biblically, God has a very different idea of what it means to be blessed. And so where on Instagram you might instead say uh, hashtag fortunate or hashtag grateful, hashtag blessed really should have a different meaning. So we're going to work to reclaim this word blessed. I mean, there is a temporal or a material aspect to God's blessings that we can experience those things in this life. Um, but those material and temporal blessings always have a source from the spiritual and the eternal blessing that God has for us. It's not so we can enjoy life in the here and now. It's that, that they are a foretaste. They are a sign for what God really, that what is really important to God is that we can commune with him and that we can be with him forever one day in the life to come. If you listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 to 7, if you were here last week, you would have uh, gotten the homework, and as I'm sure many of you have done, had, had gone home and read, and read Matthew chapter 5 to 7, um, the Sermon on the Mount, where a lot of James's teaching um, comes from. And so in Matthew, um, when... Jesus talks about being blessed or what it's called the Beatitudes. This is what Jesus tells us about what it means to be blessed. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. He says, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the persecuted and the reviled. This doesn't sound a whole lot like blessed are the those who can kick up their feet and enjoy a beverage. You listen to James, he says this. He says, blessed are those who persevere under trial. Blessed are those who stand the test. And so once again, we see this great reversal of the gospel where the last shall be first and the first shall be last, where the poor will be exalted and the rich will be humiliated. This reversal of the gospel that God himself experiences in himself. Not only does God give us a message of a gospel that reverses the way this world is organized, but he experienced it firsthand in himself. Because God became flesh and blood, human being. Heaven came down to earth. The king of kings became a servant. When God came to save you and save me, to give us life and life in all its fullness, that is the embodiment of the reversal of the gospel. And he did it so that we could draw near to him. He did it so that we could be brought close to him. And what what greater blessing is there than that? What other blessing in the world is there than being close to God for us to be able to call him our Father, our Abba? And so to be blessed is really an expression of our relationship with God. To be blessed is being in right relationship with God. And this is exactly where James starts in verse 12 to 18 of chapter one. He says this. He says, blessed his creatures. Now, let me just acknowledge that this is very theologically rich, okay? And most of the time I spent preparing was deciding what not to say more than what to say. Uh, I could easily preach three to five sermons just based on these verses. There was so much in there. So, I prayed and I said, God, give me wisdom on what our congregation needs to hear this morning. And so, I know I'm not going to hit all of the marks, but I think God has a word for us today. So, the first question I have is this Who is then the person that is blessed? And we see from James that the blessed person is the one who is steadfast, the blessed person is the one who is steadfast. And this word steadfast shows up in verse 3 of James chapter 1 as well. And this is what it says. It says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, this word steadfastness in the Greek in this instance is hypomone. Hypomone, which has this understanding or has this idea of being under or remaining or bearing up. I think Pastor Lucas talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's steadfastness. And this is a capacity to bear up in the face of difficulty. But if you look at verse 12, this is the same, this is, we translate it steadfastness, but it's a, different, a bit of a different meaning. Um, it's a similar word, it has the same root word, but this one is hypomeno. Blessed is the man who remains hypomeno under trial, steadfast under trial. And hypomeno has this um, idea of, of being under, but also continuing. Under and continuing, maintaining a belief, maintaining a course of action in the face of difficulty. And so to be steadfast, to be blessed is to be steadfast, and to be steadfast is to be able to stand up and bear up in the face of difficulty, but also to continue and maintain a course in the face of opposition. And that happens when it comes to trials and it comes to testing. There's a steadfastness that we face in trials and testing that we can have. So the next part in verse 13 to 15 is interesting because this word that James uses for trials and tests is actually from the same word, same root word in the Greek that that he uses for the word temptation. And what James does when he brings these two words together that are very similar, similar, okay, Um, the big word for it is that they have a similar cognate, when he puts them together, it it showcases a very interesting dynamic. And what James is telling us is that when you have trials and tests, they actually come from without. They are external to you, trials and testing. But when it comes to temptation, that comes from within. That is something that is internal. And so what James is saying is that all trials actually have temptation as a component, all trials have temptation as a component. So just follow me on this. It is clear in this passage that James is saying that there are trials that lead to death. There are trials that can lead to death. He uses two very visceral metaphors for this, right? One is in fishing. And so bear in mind that James, when he was writing this, and at the time of Jesus, the early church, turn, um, turn of the millennia, or uh, beginning of, um, yeah, when he was writing, um, fishing was one of the biggest industries, right? Like Fishing was something that everybody knew. And so to use a metaphor from fishing, like luring or enticing or being dragged away, which these words use, um, the people would have understood it completely. So sin is like that. Sin is like this lure that you look at and all of a sudden you're enticed by it. And then you follow it. And then you bite down. When you bite down, you were dragged away and you were taken by it. But it was you who followed it in the first day because it was enticing to you. And so he uses this, um, this metaphor for being lured and being enticed by this desire. And then the next metaphor he uses is um, to, uh, for a life cycle. And he says that this desire, when it conceives, it gives birth to sin. And then that sin grows. And when it has become fully grown, it leads. To death. And so there's this idea that there's this life cycle that, um, that your desires have when they turn into temptation and when t- temptation turns to sin. And so to put it in a, uh, an equation, it may look like this. Desire plus fulfillment equals sin. Desire and fulfillment equals sin. Now, desire is an interesting thing. Again, it comes from something that is already within. It's already the desire that we have. But it can begin very casually. It can begin with just a thought. And then it's a thought that we allow to exist in our mind and that we give attention to over and over again. And we begin to see that it grows. You don't don't set out to murder somebody. Maybe not like actually murder somebody. But I mean, I think all of us at some point or another have murdered somebody in our minds, right? And the Bible tells us that when you think it, it's basically done. That's, That's as bad as doing it. But it doesn't start with, you know, it's like, I just, I just want to go out and murder people, right? It starts with, man, this person is really niggling me. There's something about him that's really annoying. It's just getting under my skin. And if you allow that to fester, it turns into, man, I really don't like this person. I don't know what it is. It's just, you know, there's something that just rubs me the wrong way. And the next thing you know, it's like, I just hate being around this guy. Like, he is just not a nice person. That's how... Desire works. It's, it starts small, it starts casually, but it starts within, from within. And these desires that we have, desires for love, desires for gratification, desires for justice, it, it starts within. And they all can we have a good place of, of starting. But if they turn towards sin, the temptation can lead us from desire to fulfillment to sin. And sin then, if you... Um, if sin plus a pattern of unrepentant sin then ultimately leads to death. So this temptation to sin can turn into something that just becomes so normalized in your life. You don't even really think twice about it. Not knowing that that is going to lead you to death. Not physical death, but a death in the life to come where you no longer are kept in the embrace and in the love and the presence of God. God. And so James is very clear that there are trials that will lead to death, but also we are promised that there are trials that will lead to life, that if we are steadfast, there is a promise, that there is a crown of life that awaits us, and this is the blessing that God has for us, that there are trials that lead to life if we persevere in the face of tests and trials. And so trials can lead to death, as James is very clear about. Trials can lead to life, as James is also very clear about. And what that tells us is this, that trials, with trials, there is no middle ground. Trials leave no middle ground. When you are faced with a trial, you will have a choice before you. It's either you choose steadfastness or you choose sin. You either choose death or you choose life. There is no net neutral when it comes to a trial, because temptation is always a component of it. And so bear that in mind, that there are trials that lead to life, trials that lead to death, uh, and there is no middle ground. So we see that trials lead to temptation, lead to sin, lead to death, and also that trials can lead to temptation, but that temptation can lead to steadfastness, and steadfastness will lead to life. And for for all of us, choosing life really is this, means steadfastness in the face of trial. It means standing the test. Choosing life means the endurance, the patience, the perseverance it takes to be obedient, to not waver, but to to face that trial and and, uh, with the wisdom that God gives um, to do the thing that he desires for us in that trial. Now, there's a life experience that that I've been through that really brought this reality into sharp focus, the reality of persevering, the reality of being steadfast. Uh, And that was when I ran a half marathon. Now, I've shared this here before, but I think it's been a while, so I'm going to share it again because it's a great story. So this is how it happened. This happens to me a lot. I don't know what it is. I keep getting dragged into things like, oh, let's run 10 kilometers together. Oh, let's run a half marathon. So what happened was my sister um, decided that she wanted to run this half marathon. And so she signed up for it. And she gathered a bunch of other people and be like, hey, sign up with me. Just support me. Let's, let's run this thing together. Let's train. And so she had a running partner. Uh, her name is Dorothy. So my, name, my sister's name is Emily and her running partner, Dorothy, um, trained together for like eight months. And there were other people signed up. And me, as a, you know the great big brother that I am, I said, I'm going to support you. Of course I'll run with you, why wouldn't I do that? And so I sign up, thinking that there are so many people that are signed up, it's gonna be no problem. If I drop out later on, no worries, she'll have others. But one by one, these other people started dropping off. They got got to it before I did, they were smart. (laughs) And so it came down to like the last few weeks and it was like me and my sister and Dorothy. And I thought, it's okay. Dorothy's around. They've been training together for eight months. They've been like running through like sleet and snow. I mean, it's gonna be totally fine. She'll understand if I drop out at the last minute. Three weeks before the tr- the, the race, Dorothy breaks her ankle. So there I am, left with this, this: What kind of brother would I be if I drop out now? I'd be horrible. So I thought okay. And so for three weeks, I was just kind of waffling, should I or shouldn't I? And finally, a week before the race, I thought, no, I can't drop out now, but I haven't trained at all. <laughs> so I thought, okay, look, I'm in, I'm in fairly good shape. I bike, you know, I, I do that. So, so on Wednesday, before the, the race on Sunday, I went out and I ran four kilometers. And I was like, I feel pretty good. I feel good, I think I could do this. And so on Friday, two days before the race, I went and I ran eight kilometers. And I'm like, that wasn't so bad. A half marathon is only about three times that. (laughs) I can do this. I think I'll be okay. So the day of the race, I get out there, and she and I are warming up, We're uh, we're at the starting line. I'm looking around at everybody around me, and I'm like, I'm starting to feel a little nervous because these guys look, like, really fit, and, I, and I'm not, I'm really not. But we ran together, and for the first 10 kilometers, I kept pace with her, feeling good. And then at 10 kilometers, I really started to fade. And she was like, do you mind if I run ahead? I'm like, no, okay, of course. <laughs> run ahead. 15 kilometers in, I start to cramp up. So my right quad cramps. I just slow to, a, I slow to a walk. I rub it out, rub it out, rub it out. Okay, it's gone. Start running again. Not so long after that, my left quad start, It goes, cramps up. Rub it out, rub it out, rub it out. Keep running. And then my calf. Then my other calf. 18 kilometers. Everything goes at the same time. And all I can do is hobble the last three kilometers to get to the finish line. I had doubts while I was doing it, whether or not I would reach the finish line, but by God's grace, I did get to the end. But I learned a lot about being steadfast. I learned a lot about perseverance and endurance during that race. Well, after the fact, maybe not during. During, my only thought was stay alive, stay alive. But after the fact, I thought a lot about this. And what I learned about steadfastness is this, that steadfastness is active. Steadfastness is active. It's inherent to the definition of being steadfast or enduring or persevering that there's difficulty or delay involved, right? So when there's a difficulty or delay, you can't go to autopilot, right? You're never never on a plane where the pilot says, Um, we're hitting a bit of turbulence. If you would uh, put on your seatbelts, I'm just going to throw this plane into autopilot. You never hear that, right? He's vigilant. He's dialed in. He's going to get you through the turbulence. Or if you're uh, you're on a boat, on a ship, and, and, and you're going through a rough patch of water. You're never, you're never going to see the captain just like kick his heels back and sit up and grab, grab a drink. He's going to be very aware of how to navigate through those waters. And so inherent to this definition of steadfastness is difficulty. So every step takes effort. Every step takes vigilance. This was, this was um, very much the case with me because as I was running, I was so far behind by the time I got near the end. um, When you're in a race, there are stations that they set up that provide you with water, provide you with like snacks and gels to help you to keep your energy up. As I was running and getting to them, they were all closing down. Because I was so far behind. So I had, every step took effort. There were no rest, they were long gone. So, when my legs stop working, my goodness, like the amount of effort just to put one foot in front of the other. Steadfastness is active. There's no, you cannot just coast along. Steadfastness requires training. Steadfastness requires training. Um, there's this thing about endurance. Like, I mean, it's, it's one thing. If you're, if you're a relatively healthy adult, you may not think it, but you could probably go and run five kilometers or even 10 kilometers without really it, it, it affecting your body. You, know, you could withstand that. Once you get beyond that, what happens is your muscles cannot endure the stress and the strain of it. And so the, the, um, the way it breaks down, it's like you, you just, you're, they just stop working. And that's what happened to me because I hadn't trained them for the endurance that it took to run 21 kilometers as opposed to 4 kilometers or 8 kilometers, which I thought was enough to get me through a half marathon. And so I had this lack of training, which made it very difficult for me in that race. So everyone who who competes and everyone who's an athlete knows that you need to train, that you need to um, have endurance. I mentioned before, I think my kids are competitive climbers, and so they train really hard. They train nine hours a week at the gym, um, working on conditioning, working on endurance. Um, If you want to be able to climb a wall, you need to be able to hold your own weight to a certain degree. You need to be able to crimp, which is to um, hold just with the pads of your fingers, and that takes training because that's an endurance thing. You have to be be able to hold your weight in that way. And so the, one of the, my life verses and one of the verses in the Bible that really illustrate this well is from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 25, uh, 27. And Paul says this. He says, in a race, do you not know that all the runners run, but only one wins the prize? So run in such a way as to win the prize. Everyone who competes goes into strict training. They do it for a crown that will not last, but we do it for a crown that will last forever. He says, so I do not... Fight like I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. You want to endure? You want to be steadfast? You've got to train. You have to be able to endure. So you can't coast. Steadfastness is active. You can't coast. It requires training. And lastly, it casts off all weight. It casts off all weight. Hebrews 12, 1 tells us that, since, therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. To lay aside the weights, you may not know it because I'm so svelte now, but I actually was 30 pounds heavier at the time of the race. 30 pounds heavier. Could you imagine even walking from your door to the car holding 30 pounds? right? Not easy. And so it would have been a lot easier for me to run that race had I cast off the weight that I was carrying. Now, I had an opportunity to do that because once again, a year later, I got roped into doing a race that I had no intention of doing. This one was called Tough Mudder. I used to be the young adult pastor here, and so we had a young adult group. And these young adults, you know, they're 20-something. They think they're on top of the world you know, they're like, nothing can harm them. They're like, let's do this race called Tough Mudder. It's not your, an ordinary race, okay? 18 kilometers of running, but on top of that, they're going to put obstacles in your way. This is what millennials do, okay? Torture themselves this way. And so I got dragged into this, and I thought, okay, I know how hard it is already to run 20 kilometers, right? 18, I don't want to do that again with this weight, but on top of that, you have to do all of these other things that require just a level of physicality and so i had the fear of god struck into me and i'm like i have to lose this weight and so i i cast off the weight in order to do that uh, that race i didn't actually get to the race for a number of reasons but um they were legitimate reasons <laughs> But James tells us that we need to lay, a weight, lay aside the weight of sin. We need to lay aside the weight of doubt. Do you remember when he says, you know, um, those of you, who, if you ask God for wisdom, do not doubt. Remember in, in, in verse 5 last week? Do not doubt. Do not be like a wave upon the sea being tossed one way or the other. Cast aside doubt. And cast aside wrong thinking about God and wrong thinking about yourself. Right? James tells us that, If you are tempted, don't say that it comes from God. Why? Because God cannot be tempted by evil. And he tempts no one. We have a tendency, right? God is very easy to blame because he doesn't talk back to you. Well, he does if if you're careful to listen. But for the most part, if something goes wrong, blame God. something's not going your way, blame God. James is like, no, you need to cast off that wrong thinking about God. God doesn't tempt you. Where does it te- where's your temptation come from? It's your own desire that lures and entices you. And that leads to sin and sin that leads to death. It comes from you. So cast off a wrong thinking about God and cast off the wrong thinking about yourself. Be sober minded about where that comes from. So you've got to cast off the weight. Steadfastness requires training, it requires effort, and it is active. And this next one is one of my favorites Steadfastness has a friend steadfastness has a friend. I had a friend for my half marathon, my sister, but only for the first 10 kilometers and then she abandoned me. But not with being steadfast, not with persevering through trial. We have a forever friend in Jesus. Listen to the words of 2 Thessalonians 3, 5. This is a blessing from Thessalonians. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. We know that Christ has been through trial, and he remained steadfast, and so with him we have a friend who knows what, we've go- what we are going through, who can be there at our side to encourage us and spur us forward. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, Yet, without sin. So, in Jesus, we have a friend to travel the journey of steadfastness in the face of trials. There used to be this um, this story, this this poem called "The Footprints." Are you familiar with footprints? Um, I don't see it very much anywhere anymore. I think maybe it's fallen out of vogue. Once upon a time, you know, you get baptized, you get a card with footprints on it or a a bookmark with footprints on it. But the story basically goes like this. There's a believer and he's walking along the beach with Jesus and um, the beach is representative of the life that, that he has lived and the trials that he has gone through. And as he's walking with Jesus, he's looking back and he's seeing that during his darkest times, during his times of trials, during his times of testing, there's only one set of footprints. And so in his heart, he asks, and he, and he comes and he asks Jesus, he says, Jesus, why is it that when I was going through my darkest times, through the valley of the shadow of death, that there is only one set of footprints? Why, you said you would never leave me nor forsake me. Why was I walking alone during that time? And Jesus looks at this man and knowingly, And with full of compassion, he says, my son, it is in those times, in your darkest moments, when you were going through trials and going through testing and temptation, you were least alone because those footprints aren't yours, they are mine. It was then that I carried you. That is the friend we have in Jesus, a friend to come beside us in times of trial and testing, That we can remain steadfast so that we can one day have the crown of life, which we hope for. And So lastly, steadfastness is hope-filled. Steadfastness is hope-filled. Again, one of my favorite passages in the Bible is from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. It says this, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but not only so, we also rejoice in our suffering, because suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his, holy, his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. Does that, does that sound familiar? He has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. He has given us the Holy Spirit who is wisdom, who teaches us how to stand up in the face of trial. That is God's love for us. Do you not love just how, how scripture just fits together? How it is all so comprehensible? Paul says that we are to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and we are to rejoice in our suffering because suffering produces perseverance or steadfastness or endurance or patience. If you remember from verse two in James chapter one, it says we are to consider it joy when we face trials of many kinds. We are to rejoice. Now I, I, I'm almost certain that, um, that James meant this to be the case with um, with um, with with saying considerate joy. This there's because there's the human experience that really that most encapsulates this, that the best illustrates this is, is in childbirth. Because you go through um, pregnancy, you go through you know the trials that, that come with it. Um, sometimes it's great, sometimes it's really not, but there's always joy at the end. There's there's something that you can look forward to. There is hope. There's going to be this new life, this baby that comes into the world. When you go through um, labor and delivery, my goodness, like how much more of a trial can there be? But again, there's hope, This hope, This hope that this child will be born and and come into your life. And so to, to consider it joy when you're in the midst of trials, I am almost certain that James would have wanted the reader to bring their mind to the process of childbirth. Because at the end of it, there's this promise and there's this gift. And James tells us that every good gift, every perfect gift comes from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. You remember that God gives us wisdom to remain steadfast, right? Verse five, God gives us wisdom to remain steadfast. That is, that's his gift. That is, that's his promise. And he gives generously to all without reproach because that is his nature. And he gives, and he says, that we will be made perfect and complete. And you see this again in verse 17 that, his, um, that they are perfect. He has a good gift, a perfect gift. And this word perfect Is only used in conjunction with the life that is to come. The perfect life that God has for us when he makes all things new. When he makes the world aright. And so that perfection is a description of the coming life that we have with the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. Now, Like, I knew what was coming at the finish line. That's not not absolute. I wasn't sure. There was genuinely a moment that I thought I might die when I was running that race, getting close to the end. But I knew that there was hope. I knew that there was hope of juice and bananas and bagels waiting for me at the end. But not only that, I also knew that I would get this baby (laughs) <laughs> to be honest I didn't even know where, I, had to, I had to look like for half an hour last night to try to find where I had put it to bring it out so, you know, so I can use it in this illustration so, I, so there was this hope for this medal but I mean like, it would have been greater if it was a crown right this is what God promises for those who persevere under trial, that there is a crown of life waiting for you. Now, this crown of life isn't a, a ruler's crown. It isn't a crown made of metal. It's not like the crown you have and say, I have dominion over all of you. I am your sovereign. Not that kind of crown. It is the crown of a victor. It is like the laurel leaves that you put on the, on, on, on the head of the person who persevered more than every, anyone else to get to the finish line. It is the victor's crown. And that's the crown that awaits us. Last week we talked about having seven rings for Ariana Grande. Now I'm going to talk about five crowns because there are five crowns in the New Testament that talk just about this. I'm going to ask um, Andy Cherry to write a song called Five Crowns, actually, so be ready for that. I'm committing him to that. Andy, are you listening? I am committing you to writing a song called... I'm just kidding. That's not going to happen. Okay. Five crowns. These are what they are. The crown of rejoicing. Or the crown of boasting in 1 Thessalonians. You guys can look these up yourself. Uh, The crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy. The crown of glory in 1 Peter. A crown that is incorruptible, imperishable. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And in James, a crown of life. All these crowns are representative of the promise of the life to come. They are a promise of what God has in store for all of us, for those who persevere, who those who endure, or those who are steadfast and stand up under trial, that he will give us the crown of life, that we will be with him eternally and forever rejoicing. You might even say that the crown itself is life, that the crown that God offers you is life, and it is promised to those who love God in verse 12. So those who love him will have this crown and who are the ones who love god those who are committed to him and committed to his mission and so it brings us to the last verse in our text verse 18 for what is god's mission it says that of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures this whole idea of being brought forth again that birthing concept, right? There's so many ties, there's so many ways that that James just kind of ties these things together. To be brought forth, that's the same verb verb as he used uh, about sin, right? And the, the juxtaposition between these two things. And so we are brought forth, we are birthed by God. For what reason, though? To be a first fruit of his creatures. And to be a first fruit is to be a foretaste. That we are to to give the world a taste of what God means to accomplish when he recreates the world, when he makes all things new. We are to live lives that are so representative and to be ambassadors for his son, Jesus, in the world that people can taste and see his goodness, taste and see his nature as a generous giver. That is his mission, that all would come to know and see that he is God that he is for them. You might say it this way, that we have been made new to renew. You recognize that? One of our core values. We have been made new to renew. So that's God's mission. That he has blessed us, not for ourselves, not so we can enjoy life here, but he has blessed us so that we can be in right relationship with him that we can receive this crown of glory that he has promised to us if we simply persevere and are steadfast in the face of trial. And as we do that, we become a light to the world. We come, his hands and feet, we show the world what is possible when God loves you and you love God. My prayer for you... um, is is that you would just consider a little more deeply what it means to follow Jesus Christ as Lord, as Master, how he desires for you to live your life in a way that exalts him and puts him on display. He wants you to be steadfast through trial, but not just for yourself, not because he does, but not simply because he wants you by his side and he wants to reward you with a crown of life, but that there is a mission, and we are all on it together with him. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we come before you this morning, and God, maybe some of us has, have heard something that is new, something that is touching us in a way that we didn't expect. God, I, I just pray that as each of us it takes time today and in the week to come to reflect that you would do your work in our hearts, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal yourself to us in new ways, in ways that you want us to change, in ways that you want us to be transformed. God, for those of us who are experiencing trial and temptation and, and maybe have felt like we were in it alone or have been abandoned, God, remind us that we have Christ who himself met trials and temptation with steadfastness and knows our every pain, knows our every temptation, and and is he himself without sin. God, remind us of your tremendous love and your tremendous goodness to us that you promised to give us wisdom so that we can live lives in a way that is steadfast. And not only that, but live lives in a way that show the world who you are. So God, we thank you for that opportunity. We thank you for your word, which is just so beautiful. And so comprehensible and so unified, God. We pray that you would open up our eyes, enlighten us more and more to your word every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.